guys, and welcome back to episode 22 of the Motorsport 101 podcast. It's been a long and painful hiatus, but after three weeks, we are back. Unfortunately, F1 summer breaks and inconvenient scheduling made this podcast a bit of a bitch to pull off in the meantime. But we are back, and uh, very glad to be back as well. Wish it could have been under slightly more positive circumstances, but we'll get to that later in the episode. In the meantime... Pleasure to be back, and uh, pleasure to be back alongside my co-host and partner in crime, Mr. Ryan King. Hello, sir. Yeah, I'm glad to be back on the show. Yeah, it's been too long. I, mean, I think you've been, what, on 18 of these now, I think? <laughs> 18 out of 22. It's quite it's quite the track record. We just can't get rid of you these days. It's like we, we, we went three shows without you, and I was like, this is never happening again. <laughs> he's, he's the glue that holds this podcast together. <laughs> And he carries me whenever I have a really bad day, like today when I was spending... F- I spent four hours time trial on an F1 2015, and, and just just sheer unadulterated masochism on my end, and it wasn't pretty. But we got through it, and uh, now I'm doing a podcast, because why the hell not? <laughs> but um, yeah, it's an absolutely loaded edition of the Motorsport 101 podcast. Again, you know, it's, it's, it's hardly surprising. We've been out of action for three weeks, so... Hardly surprising. We're going to tackle the uh, difficult elephant in the room, and that's obviously the very, very sad passing of Jules Bianchi, F1's first fatality since 1994. We'll be talking about that briefly. Alongside the rest of the news, we'll be talking about Haas F1 and the possibility of, of, of their driver lineup becoming finalised hopefully soon for 2016. A, a few names in contention for that have been re- revealed by Gene Haas, so we'll break that down. We'll be talking about the possibility of Jensen Button getting the Top Gear gig on over on the BBC, as his name has been heavily rumoured for said Top Gear role. And we'll be talking about Top Gear itself heading to Amazon Prime and what's a pretty groundbreaking new deal and something that, you know, on this kind of level is uh, astonishing to, to read about. And uh, it's, I know it's loosely tied into motorsport, but hey, it's Top Gear. Who doesn't watch Top Gear? And, so <laughs> we'll, talk, we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll be talking about Carmen Jorda getting in beef with Michelle Mouton, the uh, leader of the uh, FIA and Women in Motorsport Commission, and uh, why they've been going to war and, and why we kind of take the side of someone you wouldn't expect us to take the side on. We'll be talking about that as well. And of course, we'll be talking about the Hungarian Grand Prix. Hooray! A outstanding Formula One race. We had a great one at Britain and we've had an even better one now. Who says F1 is in crisis? Me, but still, not for the reasons you'd expect. <laughs> uh, Sebastian Vettel took his 41st career victory, so King gets to be smug on the podcast about how he thought Hamilton would get to 41 and Senna's number first. <laughs> but uh, we'll be talking about that. We'll be talking about Mercedes' pretty terrible day at the office, the uh, entertaining race that Daniel Ricciardo decided to put on for the podium spots alongside a, a double podium for Red Bull. Max Verstappen's fourth place, McLaren finishing both cars in the points for the first time this season, and a generic rant at Sky and Autosport's driver rating system, which is getting more irritating by the race. And finally, we'll also discuss the great big bulging IndyCar section. It's like a growth on somebody's ankle at the moment about how it's, we've missed so much IndyCar stuff over the last three weeks. It's probably going to be the biggest segment of the show this time around. We'll be talking about Milwaukee and Sebastian Bordet took his second win of the season. Helio Castroneves nearly winning from the back and proof that Joseph Newgarden can oval too. What a kid. We'll also be talking about Iowa and that race last week. Ryan Hunter-Ray after a torrid season becomes IndyCar's ninth different winner 
this season as narrowly pipping Joseph Newgarden in, in a big American 1, 2, 3, and 4 with Sage Karam's first IndyCar podium. Grrr. And <laughs> with Graham Rayhold putting himself right into title contention after a bad day at the office for the Penske drivers. Also, we were talking about the big fight that Karam and Carpenter got themselves into, which was kind of an indirect cause of the controversial new IndyCar article 9.2.8, which basically means IndyCar's drivers can no longer criticise their own series. We'll talk about that uh, in depth, as well as LEDs becoming a part of the cars in Ohio this weekend for their uh, third-to-last race of the season coming up very soon. And we'll be talking about IndyCar's own president of operations, Derek Walker, resigning from his post at the end of the season. So all that and probably some impromptu segues and much, much more on Motorsport 101. Well, King, there's one obvious dominant story that we've missed in the last three weeks since we last went on this show, and that was the tragic loss of, of Jules Bianchi, who sadly lost his fight after a awful, awful brain hemorrhage and injury he, he suffered at the Japanese Grand Prix last year. Formula One's first fatality since Ayrton Senna in 1994. Um, it's been 21 years, and, you know, it's been a... Very lucky 21 years, you could say, to a degree. And I know the sport's taken huge leap, leaps forward in terms of safety and whatnot, but it, I think that just makes this loss all the more tragic, Ron, don't you think? Yeah, I. it's kind of... I mean, it's still a bit hard to digest mm. what has happened, that a driver is dead because of an incident at a Grand Prix. Mm. And I think Martin Brundle said it, best on Sky's coverage of the Hungarian Grand Prix that Jules will not be the last, that motorsport will always be dangerous. Of course, of course, and I think it's something that we often take for granted because the safety is so great in F1. And, you know, from where we were in 94, we are so far forward. It's unbelievable. And if anything, I'd like to argue that Senna's death was the catalyst for real groundbreaking safety changes in Formula 1, but Let's be real here. We're all driving cars that have 900 horsepower and, you know, are going at 200 miles an hour plus on many occasions. And when that happens, there will always be an, an element of danger and there will always be an element of, of, of trouble. And, you know, Jules Bianchi's accident was, was absolutely horrific. And um, it's... I mean, a lot of people were obviously hoping for a miracle, hoping for a recovery, and hoping that things would turn around. And you know, it never really happened. I mean, it was just a couple of weeks before before his death that um, his dad was very candid, talking about how he felt like he was losing hope. In that, you know, the, it seemed very unlikely that his son would ever make a recovery, and that was heartbreaking to read in the first place. That uh, his own dad had pretty much lost hope at that point, and, uh, and then just a couple of weeks later. There he goes. He's, he's he's gone, and a tragic loss. And just just twenty five years age, years of age. That's no age. I mean, he's, I mean, I'm twenty three next month, and just just knowing that the guy that's only a couple of years older than you has just passed away like that is just 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 tragic. Yeah. Uh, and a, a a young talent that was destined for great things, and you know he was 
I mean, Ferrari confirmed he was going to be the Kimi Raikkonen replacement until that injury. So he was pretty much, like many people suspected, he was penciled in for a Ferrari job and at least a Sauber gig this season, um, given the affiliation with the Ferrari brand. That Yeah, they, Luca de Montezemolo himself, when he was still president, said, yeah, Jules was the young guy we were looking at to take over in the long run. So... Yeah, it's just it's 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 a tragic blow for for Ferrari for for the Mana Mauritia team that have already gone through so much tragedy um, as a team. So um, obviously we, we still miss Maria de Velota who tragically lost her life last year as well. And on, on top of that, you know, a, a team that's been through the mill in and out of administration, and now their second driver fatality. It's just unbelievably tragic and sad that the teams had to go through something like that on so many occasions and um yeah I, there was one thing that stood out to me it was when they interviewed John Booth about this um during their pre-race coverage for Hungary and you could hear his voice crack at the end when talking about him and it just it breaks your heart it really does and you know they really did love Jules and you know he was such a big asset to the team and a big asset to Formula One, and uh, um, it's, 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 it was absolutely tragic. And um, the, the tributes obviously poured in at the Hungarian Grand Prix, and you know we, we saw the funeral that was that was that was live there as well. I mean, many of the drivers, including John Eric Verne, yeah, his very close friend, was lifting the coffin as well as a public service. I think pretty much just about everybody on the active F1 roster was there. Um, photos was something that they they went out on the internet we all saw it it was it was it was live on sky sports as well so yeah it was all out there in public but um yeah just a just a devastating week for formula one yeah i mean especially for the bianchi the bianchi family because brunda also said it in a segment that this is not the first time that tragedy has struck this family when it came to motor racing because jules great uncle lucian bianchi lost his life in 1967, at the age of 34, testing at Le Mans, he spun out his Alfa Romeo and struck a telegraph pole and died. Oh, Jesus. I, I, I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that. That's the second Bianchi fatality in their own family as a result of motorsport. Jesus Christ. Yeah. My God. Um... Yeah, there was a beautiful scene before before the Hungarian Grand Prix started where the drivers all were arm-in-arm um, surrounding them with their helmets as well during during a minute silence before the Hungarian Grand Prix took place. Um, it was it was beautifully done. It was well done. His, they, I think they flew. They think they, yeah, I think they flew his dad out as well. But um, I think they they think they um they uh they they handled it well. I mean, we we saw so we saw I think it was Felipe. Yeah. Um, let me see. Yeah, it was it was his dad out there. They flew him out to the Grand Prix as well, so he could be there. And yeah, just just touching scenes all around. And I, I personally would like to make a recommendation if you haven't already. Um, check out Rachel Brooks's F1 diary. She normally puts on the Sky Sports F1 website. I don't normally read it, but I did make a special effort on this one. And she talks very candidly about Jules and her relationship with him uh, as a driver to a, to a journalist, and you know how candid they were. It's it's, it's a really well written piece, and I highly recommend you watch you watch that. And also, I'd like to recommend if you haven't already. Um, Check out the Henry Surtees Foundation website. I mean, just a couple of days after Jules passed, it was also the sixth anniversary of Henry Surtees' tragic death when he, he was hit in the head by by a, a freak accident by a tyre um, back in 2009, and he was just 18 years of age. And 
Um, the, the foundation was set up in his name to try and rehabilitate people who suffer brain injuries through the power of mo- motorsport and engineering. And uh, they do they do fantastic work um, in that department. You know, my family's been affected by brain by, by brain injuries before. My auntie's um, gone through a brain tumor, and you know, it, it's it's an unbelievably traumatic thing. And it can it it can affect it can affect you when you least expect it, and that's what makes it all the more shocking. So, if you haven't already, check out the uh, the website. It's www.henrysertesfoundation.com. Check it out if you can. Anything you can spare, please donate. That would be a wonderful thing you can do. Um, because, like I said during my video, it's it's a situation where Jules may have lost his fight, but we can do we can still do something for people that are still fighting that fight themselves. Um. Anything else you want to add on to that, King? Before we move on, no, I would just you know say definitely if you ha- if you have the money, donate donate it to the Henry Surtees Foundation. Yeah, thank you very much, man. Right, um, uh, moving forward from there. Um, again, trying to break the mood now, trying to be a little bit more positive because that's what we do on this show. <laughs> we like we like for all due respect, yeah, it, 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 that's the most serious I've had to be in twenty two episodes <laughs> of doing this, and. People who know me well know I'm not that kind of person. I'm a very upbeat, try to be very jokey kind of guy. So hopefully that over, I don't have to be like that again on this show. But you know, obviously out of respect, I kind of have to be. But uh, moving forward, um, Haas, the Haas F1 team have been a little bit more candid about the possibility of who they're going to sign for their F1 team. Uh, for 2016 when they emerge and uh, Gene Haas was um, had an interview the other day and he has said and I quote we have a list of drivers in which we are interested in but in the next few months there are many there will be many moves in the existing lineups and we will wait to see who is interested in the project we are developing and three names that were, that were dropped into mention in this article written by this is f1.com was the two current Ferrari reserve drivers John Eric Verne and Esteban Gutierrez as well as the everyone's favorite flavor of the month in F1, Nico Hulkenberg, um, saying that has sports specifically mentioned. Those three has said two of them are reserve drivers for Ferrari, so they are certainly a possibility. As far as the other name that you mentioned, he's a driver from another team, so the possibility of him driving for us depends on his position within his team. Anybody who is driving in Formula One right now certainly is someone that we would be interested in if he becomes available. So. Like it's an interesting article, mostly because it's not really the three guys they mentioned. Like, I mean, Haas was specific to a degree, but he's also pretty much went out and said anyone on the open market has got a chance here, <laughs> so to speak. So he's kind of watered that whole report down to an extent. But what do you make of these rumors, King? They seem very solid about you know where people were guessing Haas was going to look for drivers. That Ferrari was definitely going to be mm. the place to look. Because Gutierrez has been high on many people's list because he's a Ferrari reserve driver and he's Mexican. All sponsored. Yeah. And uh, Jev, because he's an experienced veteran, also Ferrari driver. I don't know, Nico Hulkenberg again, it just seems because Nico Hulkenberg's the hot thing right now. Mm hmm. It's yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, Haas is affiliated with Ferrari, so naturally, the the, the idea of taking any of their reserve drivers does make sense. 
Um, it's 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 not an oversight. <laughs> it's just it's just it's just natural to think that, and I totally get why people would think that. So, yeah, uh, why not go for Vern? And you know, Vern is an experienced guy. He's had over I think something like seventy races now because he's he's done four years in the sport. Um, so he's plenty experienced. I mean, it's, it's kind of weird still calling Vern a veteran when he's only twenty four years old himself, yeah. um, which is just terrifying. And it's uh, right now still three years below the average age of the grid this year. Yeah. <laughs> and like, he's, a, he's he's a veteran of over seventy Grand Prix to his name. <laughs> on some teams, he would be considered a young driver. Exactly, especially when you look at teams like McLaren, where the average age of their drivers is thirty-four and a half. So it's, it's a situation where Vern is ten years underneath, and he's still got seventy races to his name. And Gutierrez, again, not the best driver, but well-sponsored, good name. He's been in out. He's been in the car for two seasons. Why not? You know. So um, that's the name that's been thrown in the mix. I mean, Hulkenberg, you're right. Is is everyone's hot topic? He's the flavor of the month after the Le Mans win and his good performances lately. Um, you know, Hulkenberg is always looked at as the guy that that never gets a top class opportunity. And uh, as I've called him before on many occasions, it's like if the if the friend zone was real, he would it would have been invented by Nico Hulkenberg, and he's been overlooked twice for top level seats he missed out on McLaren in 2013 which in hindsight probably wasn't a bad idea (laughs) hindsight being 2020 and all that but at the same token he missed out on Ferrari last year as well when uh, Raikkonen became available at the 11th hour when according to ESPN I remember this report from last year they said that Hulkenberg had signed his end of the deal he was good to go. He had agreed to deal to go to Ferrari, and at the eleventh hour, Luca de Montezemolo changed his mind and went with Raikkonen instead. And again, hindsight being twenty twenty, maybe that wasn't the right idea because <laughs> Raikkonen's kind of crapped the bed for Ferrari since he's come back. But you know, Hulkenberg missed out again, so he's always kind of been overlooked. This probably is his greatest opportunity. If, and it's a big if, and that's if Ferrari let Raikkonen go. I mean, we're going all city season here in the moment, but it all comes down to Ferrari on this one, doesn't it, King? Yeah, it it always comes down to the big team that makes the first move first. Like, last year was when, you know, Red Bull announced that Sebastian was leaving to Ferrari, and Ferrari Mm. had to go after that. It's whoever makes the first move and pushes that first domino. Exactly, and it's a situation where it's not like Red Bull, where you know you kind of know what's going to happen because they have their own driver academy. They don't hire outside of that academy anymore, so you could just push guys up. For a matter of when it came to Red Bull, it was just going to be a matter of well, we we all already kind of knew Alonso was leaving. Um, Vettel was the, was the obvious replacement there, and Red Bull were just going to bump up from, from within their own. So they just bumped up Kvyat into that seat, and you know Vern was cast cast away to the wayside, and then you know they they, they filled in signs in for Stappen for, for the Toro Rosso seats. This is a different case. This is outside of that Red Bull umbrella, so it's a little bit more unpredictable. You've got Ferrari. They've been linked with Bottas all season long. The question is, do they want to pay the twenty million compensation to let Bottas out of his contract? And that's a big deal. Um, and you know, Bottas has kind of gotten sick of the rumours now. I think he's, he's, he's spoken quite publicly about that the other day. That you know, he's, he's he doesn't like these Ferrari rumours going around. He just wants to get on with his driving because 
he's a, he's a Finn. What did you expect? <laughs> um, um, so you know, Bottas has been linked. He just wants to get on, get his head down and get on with it, which is kind of funny because he's only three points ahead of Felipe Massa, the guy Ferrari let go in the first place, which I find hilarious about all of that. But King, it's, it looks like it's going to be between Bottas and Hulkenberg for this seat. Who yeah. would you go with? Oh, I'd, to be honest, I'd go Bottas. Like mm. he seems to be. I don't know. He seems to have a higher ceiling when it comes to success. I like at both at their peaks. It seems like Botas has more potential. Ah, the Christian Horner card. Yeah, it <laughs> seems like when I've seen Botas shine brightest, it's been a lot brighter than I could possibly see Hulkenberg. Interesting. Um... I'm inclined to agree with that only for, because, and this is the what, this is the argument I've used, and people have addressed this to me and asked if I'm, I've said Bottas has one thing Hulkenberg doesn't, and that's and that's proof of concept. When when you've given Bottas a top tier car, he has delivered. Because last year he was fourth in the championship, he had six podiums last season, he was excellent, one of the drivers of the year last year, and Hulkenberg, through no fault of his own, has been very unlucky to have never really had any time. In a, in a car where it was on that level of podium winning potential. He's been very unlucky in that regard, while Bottas had, has had that run at Williams for the last year and a half where they've been in the mix for race wins on occasion while being a perennial podium contender. Hulkenberg's never had that luxury. So with Bottas, you've kind of got a bit of a proof of concept in your, in your corner there in that one. You see you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And... You know, Bottas is the safe bet, and yeah, it, I mean, it takes a rare scenario where Valtteri Bottas is the safe option. <laughs> <laughs> like, if, if that's the safe option, that's a pretty good option. Um, and you, you probably have to have a really, really good reason to pick Nico Hulkenberg over him. And don't get me wrong, most people, me included, are huge Hulkenberg admirers. We all know how good the kid really is, and. He's just been. He's, he's, I think he's just going to be one of those guys that just is just so clinically unlucky when it comes to these things, and it's just. Ugh. I mean, it's 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 through no fault of his own. I'm not no, saying none. Like neither of us are saying that Hulkenberg is a bad driver in any way. It's just that there's a better option on the table. Yeah, and that's what it's pretty much always been for Hulkenberg. The only time where he wasn't probably like the best option was when. McLaren went Perez over him in 2013. Well, 4-4-4-2013 in 2012 because Perez had the three podiums going into that season and Perez was white hot in 2012 for Sauber when Sauber were, in- were inconsistent, but when they were good, they were really good, yeah. Sauber. So, and again, Hulkenberg's never had that luxury. He's never had that luxury of being in a car where he can really prove himself and really catch people's attention, unlike Perez where he was inconsistent, but he had three podiums in that season and potentially two wins he missed out on because he was very unlucky at Monza just to run out of laps and Malaysia was a race he probably should have won so it was a situation where you know Hulkenberg's never been the best option and that's really unfortunate and you know as a fan I'd love to see Hulkenberg get the chance he deserves but at the same time it's like if I put my team boss hat on for a minute Bottas really is the safe play and you can't really shy away from that as much as I'd love to see Hulkenberg 
in a top level. And he still might get a chance because if, hey, if, if Bottas goes to Ferrari, there's an open seat at Williams and they could easily just give Hulkenberg his old job back. Yeah. Give Neil a call and say, hey, Nico, want to come back? And I don't see any reason why he'd say no. It's an upgrade on Force India, that's for sure. And, you know, Williams aren't a top team. Me and a customer team's always got his drawbacks, but it's still Williams. It's still a way better team than Force India. And I, I'd almost guarantee he'd get the podium he's, he's been so desperately craving um, with Williams as, as opposed to Force India, who have only ever had, I think, one career podium or two career podiums to their name since they came around in 2008. So, you know, the Haas thing makes some sense if Hulkenberg wants, wants to roll the dice and go to a team like Haas, who we don't know how they're going to perform yet, but, you know, potential upside, all those fancy words, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a possibility, but, you know, it's 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 a it's kind of a weird situation, really, isn't it? Yeah, it's a whole weird situation where you kind of need the right cards to fall into the right hands, and we won't, we won't be 100% sure until it happens. Exactly, and again, like we said, Ferrari hold all the aces here. We just got to wait and see what happens. Um, you know, it's a situation where if Ferrari keep Raikkonen, this talk is all for nothing. Um, I don't see why Ferrari would keep Raikkonen, but hey, I've seen stranger things happen in this sport. So yeah, we'll have to wait and see. But yeah, if, if Ferrari let Raikkonen go, it's all going to fall like dominoes, and that's going to be very intriguing to see what happens. But uh yeah, we'll keep an eye on that one as, as, as time goes on. Uh, moving on to Jensen Button, the um, McLaren driver, who has been heavily rumoured for a job on Top Gear. Um, Top Gear currently looking for two new presenters, obviously, after uh, it's already been revealed that Chris Evans is, gonna, is going to be hosting the BBC um, incarnation of the show, the, the next incarnation of Top Gear, and Jensen Button has been heavily rumoured for a presenting gig on Top Gear. So, King, what do you make of this? Because this is, this, this is a bizarre one to me. Uh, I mean, I could see it happening, but sure. you know, that, would, that would involve Jensen Button leaving Formula One. So, obviously, that is not popular with a lot of people. Of course. Like, a lot of F1 fans would be pissed if Button left F1 to be a TV presenter. That's... There's no getting around that. <laughs> it, it's, it's not a good sound. You know, it's like, oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to quit F1 to host a TV show, a pokey motoring program on BBC, which which people probably aren't going to watch that much now that Clarkson's gone. So, yeah, and not to mention, he's still getting paid $8 million a year at McLaren at the moment anyway. So why would you turn away from that to host a TV program? It just, it just doesn't make any sense to me as a rumor. Yeah, I mean, uh I guess, you know, if Jensen Bunn's trying to get from the week in, week out of being a Formula One driver and, you know, all the travel and promotional work that entails and switch it out for, you know, Top Gear, which obviously involves a lot of filming, but mm. it's not, you know, it isn't the same Thursday in, Sunday night out that a Formula One weekend entails. Exactly. I just don't think it's a good fit. I mean, I've seen I've seen a lot of rumor names for this Top Gear presenting. I've seen Jody Kidd's name mentioned an awful lot, which I think makes a lot of sense. Um, I, mean, I think that's I think that's almost nailed on to be honest. I, I, I can't see him not giving Jody Kidd a call on that one um, as a proper petrol head and you know attractive female figure, one for the dads. It's a bit like a doc- it's a bit like being a Doctor Who companion. It's like well, you know, it's it's one for the dads. They'll they'll watch for Jody Kidd. <laughs> 
and uh, I've seen Chris Barry's name mentioned, Philip Glenister, I've seen mentioned, I've seen Natalie Pinkham from Sky Sports wow. F1 mentioned as a potential host, and I'm like, really? I thought about it, I was like, Pink's actually probably wouldn't be that bad a fit. She, she is known for doing crazy things on Sky F1's broadcasting coverage. Yeah. Like, she, she's the outdoorsy one, so... <laughs> Like that kind of rings true, but she doesn't drive cars, so yeah, she doesn't drive. You know, so it's just like no, not really. I can't see that one. But again, I've seen crazier names linked with that before. So hey, what do we know? So what do you make of this um, huge deal of Top Gear moving to Amazon Prime? Obviously, the Top Gear trio, we should say, the yeah. original trio. I think uh, I think I've heard some place where they referred to it as Prime Gear. Prime Gear. <laughs> <laughs> Hasn't quite got the same ring to it, does it? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have the same ring, but it's it's easier to, you know, make the difference. That works. That works. That definitely works. <laughs> <laughs> so so what do you make of this? This is a huge deal. A huge deal. And, um, you know, Top Gear, the biggest entertainment show on the planet, moving to the internet. And, you know, being produced on Amazon Prime. Not even Netflix, which is the more popular brand, obviously, but uh, Amazon Prime. Like, I've heard a lot of discussions from, you know, friends who are into the tv industry talk about this and basically mm. they chalked it down to uh amazon just backing up the dump truck and ba- backing up the dump Pretty truck much. full of cash and be like you can do whatever you want with this program because um it seems like with all these new like the competition for on-demand streaming video was so intense and amazon was pretty much in dead last Compared to Netflix, HBO now going to be a thing, um, mm. Yahoo having, you know, community, Hulu having every season of, of The Simpsons ever, Amazon mm. was in last place, and they needed to make a big play somehow. And this is that big play. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they basically just... I, I I can't even begin to imagine how much money they've given those three. I mean, they turned down... Five million each from the BBC um, for Hammond and May to stick around, and they they turn that down. So that should say a lot about what kind of numbers we're talking here. And Amazon Prime, people got very antsy about Amazon Prime, saying, "Oh, no one's going to pay eighty pounds a year for that." One, you're talking about Top Gear here. <laughs> Two, they used the, the the piracy argument, and I don't buy that for a minute because. Every show is pirated. <laughs> Every show is friggin' pirated. Everything, regardless of platform, is pirated. Um, f- free, you can pay per episode. So you, you, you don't need to be an Amazon Prime member to watch this new version of Top Gear. You can just pay, I think it's £2 an episode, and, you, and, you get, and it's yours. So And people will pay £2 an episode. So that's not a big deal. Yeah, that's so, not that much. So, you know... People will pay it. So again, I don't see what the massive deal is. People are getting people are getting their knickers in a twist for no particular reason at all. Hell, I'll pay two pound an episode. I'll be totally okay with that. I've, and you know, it's it's a situation where people just want to get mad about something because yeah. that's the internet these days. But I think it's a fantastic deal, and I think it's a groundbreaking deal that uh, a show of this magnitude is going to the internet as opposed to with a proper TV network and. 
Yeah, it's it's more like the changing face of, of uh, how we consume media these days. That you know, TV as a format is is dying slowly, and the internet is becoming more and more prominent for for your for your content these days. And yeah, I think it's I think I'm I'm going to be very intrigued to see what happens as as the show comes out next year, and uh, what happens what, and how, how the BBC reacts to it because I think the BBC are probably somewhere. We're very hot collars at the moment, thinking, <laughs> crud, what do we do now? Yeah, <laughs> I, I think this, you know, hate about it going to Amazon Prime is down to Netflix being the more popular platform. And the Absolutely. People, the people who are likely complaining have a Netflix subscription but don't have a Prime subscription. Yeah, nailed it. I, I really do think that's the case. I mean, yeah, Netflix is the more popular platform, and yes, it's... Because people don't realize about the whole Amazon Prime thing, it's not... A video service first. It's a fantastic delivery service first. You know, like I said, if, if speaking to me as a former Prime customer, it's an excellent service, yeah. and you get free you get free one day delivery for an entire year. If you go on Amazon five times a year, you've made your money back. Quite frankly, so and I do that. So yeah, it's it's an excellent investment, and people forget a year of Netflix is roughly the same as a year of Amazon Prime anyway. Yeah. So I like you're paying for convenience instead of paying by month as opposed to by year and paying a one off commitment. And like I said, that commitment is different because you're paying for for one in and you're committed. Netflix, you can quit at any time. Yeah. So you might not get a guy subscribing for a year. I've never subscribed to Netflix for a year at a time. So, yeah, I I totally get that logic by going to Amazon Prime. So people just want to get mad about stuff, quite frankly. So. But I, I think one of the things beneath the surface of this is the fact that the competition that's being involved, that that Amazon felt the need that they needed to compete with Netflix, so they spent all this money to get them to come on board. And that's nothing to Amazon. That's a drop in the ocean to Amazon to, to spend money on on getting the Top Gear trio. That's a game changer. People will pay the money yes. for this. I, I'm, I'm dead certain on that. It's Top Gear. It's the biggest entertainment show in the world. So I completely think they'll, they'll go for that. So, yeah, I'm very intrigued to see how this goes forward. And, yeah, I'm intrigued to see what they do next year. Moving on uh, as our last major news segment of the episode. Carmen Jorda and Michelle Mouton, the head of the Women in Motorsport Commission, have gone to walking. <laughs> oh, uh, yeah, basically, uh, you know, four-time WRC rally winner and I think 1923 World Rally Championship runner-up, Michelle Mouton, has said she's not in- interested in Carmen George's position as a de- development driver at Lotus. And uh, basically, it suggests that other names... Sh- other names has more of what it takes to make the F1, and she basically name drops Monty Detail Vestro, Danica Patrick, Susie Wolf, and even Bisca Visser. Mm. And it's basically, it's like, it's basically, she's said that they've managed to get up the ladder on skill while, quote unquote, she didn't specifically say Jorda in this instance, but it was right after that comment. Where it's like marketing strategies and political reasons why Jordan got up to where she is today. It's quite a stinging remark from someone of her nature to come out with this. And I know Carmen backfired and basically said she didn't understand why she made those comments. And I'm inclined to agree with that, to agree with that statement because. Yeah, I can't believe what I'm saying. I'm on Team Jordan for this one. I never thought I would say that publicly. But. I think Carmen's got a very good point. I mean, if you're head of the motors, of the women in motorsport 
commission. You shouldn't have the luxury of being able to pick and choose which female drivers you support. Because if you're doing that, it's not really a women in motorsport commission. It's a women in motorsport commission depending on whether I like you or not. And that yeah. should not be a thing. And you, you, we shouldn't, like, if you're ahead of a, what's already a niche to have very, there's very few women in motorsport in general. We all, we all know it's a male dominated industry in the first place. So when that happens, and then when the person who's supposedly pushing this agenda to try and get more women into motorsport, the last thing I feel like you should be doing is nitpicking the very few women who get there in the first place. So, yeah, like you've got a bike in the background going on there. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's like Anna Carrasco may have heard me back there. But, um, yeah, it's, it's a situation where I feel like you can't be nitpicky about something like this because it's already such a segmented part of the community. Like you barely, like, like you barely, you, you might get one woman a decade who's, who's, who has any involvement in an F one at all. Yeah, and you can't pick and choose situations <laughs> like this. It makes you look stupid. <laughs> and this is not the first time Michelle Muldana has had a situation like this. Like when Bernie said that, oh, I'm considering an all female world championship. She basically came out and said that's a ridiculous idea and it will never happen. And she said this. She e- this. She said this in an email to the Associated Press, which she later had to redact <laughs> and say that oh, we're gonna first do uh, research first because obviously it's not a terrible idea. <laughs> All right. So in other words, a backtrack visible from space. Yes. Um, and. Yeah, like we, we we mentioned this on the show before. I think your idea of an of an all female Formula Four series was actually a really good idea. You know, just get women get women through the grassroots level and then see what happens. I thought that was yes. a that was a very good idea. Um, and like I said, we we we're in a very fortunate position when it comes to female influence because the female voice in motorsport is bigger. We have relevant women. In, on many levels, like Simona, um, like Susie Wolf, like Carmen Jorda, and if anything, as time has gone on, rather than just going, "Oh, Carmen Jorda's in Formula One, boo this woman," I'm now more of I'm now more of the stance of, "Yeah, she knows her role. She's never yeah. going to race in Formula One. She knows she's never going to race in Formula One, and she's kept it pretty real to me as time's gone on." And I respect her for that. I respect her honesty, and I respect the fact that she knows what she's doing. She's not trying to outkick her coverage, so to speak. And I think she's handled herself well since taking that job. I think, I think I mean, Formula One fans on the internet are a very fickle and judgmental bunch, and we can't wait to to bury somebody. That's what we do on here, and we all know Carmen Jordan didn't get that seat on merit, and of, of course she didn't. We all know that. So, shoving yeah. it down people's throats again and again doesn't solve anything. And so, it, yeah, I, I on, don't on, know. On, it, it, it seems like, if you're a woman, you're an extremely easy target. Like, ridiculously oh, easy. And I'm just like, I've even seen it from other comments, I mean, from other women, where it's like, uh, like, I would love for a woman to make it to Formula 1, but I don't want her to have supermodel looks, which is, to me, ridiculous. If you're that's good, you're... Stu- that's, a, that's just a stupid comment. Yeah, if you're but- good, you're good. And it's a podcast that we've both listened to before, and let's not bring it up. If- <clears throat> <clears throat> yeah, I totally may or may not be employed by said institution, but yes, um, I've mentioned this before, and... 
I like the fact that our cohort and scrutineer podcast friend Rebecca James actually has our corner on this one where she'll be the first person to say, look, if you want true equality, gender should not be a factor. Looks should not be a factor. We all know that Carmen Jordan isn't there on merit, but we know she's not going to drive there either. It's like, why is everybody getting so mad at Carmen Jordan while completely ignoring Adelie Fong, who got the exact same gig for the exact same job, and people just didn't really give a shit at the time, yeah. <laughs> as opposed to Carmen Jordan that continues to get stupid feminist jokes and stupid female jokes and a, a needless abuse months after her employment. I think it's ridiculous. Yeah, we all made a, 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 a crack or two when it first got announced, and we all thought. Yeah, it's kind of a dumb employment, but let's be real here. She makes money. She's going to make money. She's intelligent. And the fact we're all talking about her vindicates that sign-in. So we really need to stop the needless shit on Carmen Jordan, in my opinion. Yeah, because they they signed her because they knew this would happen. Yeah, it's like there would be a witch hunt. And we, the F1 community, are predictable as hell. It's, It's... you know, we like to witch hunt on people and, you know, we like we, we, we like believing in the whole we should get here on merit principle when that's never been how the system has worked. <laughs> that's never been the case and it probably never will be given the way Formula 1 is now structured. So we should just, you should just suck it up and watch it happen as opposed to nitpicking every driver that gets, in, that gets into F1 because it's not the way you would have liked it to have happened or that wasn't your favourite driver that's not in F1. So... For me, the carbon Jordan abuse is ridiculous, and I think we just need to move on from it. Like, she knows what she's doing. We all know what she's doing. Let's just leave it at that, as opposed to trying to play a pinata out of Carmen Jordan for no good reason. I think it's silly, and I think it just exposes Michelle's own silly agenda of, well, you know, I, like, I want to get women in motorsport, but only the ones I like. And that's kind of stupid in the first place, really. So, you know. Anywho... We're going to take a quick commercial break. Well, maybe not really a commercial break. It's more like a musical interlude, so to speak. But uh, we'll be back. Let's talk about the Hungarian Grand Prix very shortly.
King, the Hungarian Grand Prix, and yay, it was outstanding again! And it didn't even rain either! It's a miracle! <laughs> it's a miracle! Decent race. <laughs> Decent? <laughs> <laughs> okay, De- it was definitely well above average. <laughs> That was an outstanding Grand Prix. Um, the, easily the best of the season so far. It would probably hold up pretty well against anything since Canada 2011, quite frankly. For my, at least in my opinion, if it was an excellent, excellent, excellent race, I very much enjoyed the crap out of it. It was better than it had any right being right from the start, and that was. Surprise, surprise, another terrible Mercedes start, and this time it was the Ferraris that cashed in on Mercedes' terrible opening clutch. And um, the next thing you know, Ferrari, like Vettel goes round the outside of Hamilton into turn one to take the lead, and next thing you know, he's gone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, and and it wasn't just him, Raikkonen followed right behind. (laughs) Yeah, Raikkonen got past both Mercedes on the way to turn one as well, so... Rosberg was really gutted about that in his post-race video blog about that he was really frustrated that Raikkonen ended up in front of him because Raikkonen, you know, Raikkonen pulled off into the distance and, and Rosberg did not have an answer for them. And, you know, where, if you're wondering, where was Hamilton? Hamilton tried a pass into the chicane halfway through the first lap, locked his tyres up, ended up in the gravel, dropped to 10th place, and then blamed Rosberg for it <laughs> because Lewis Hamilton. Yeah. <laughs> It's it's never his fault until the second incident in a race, but <laughs> um, it, it's it's a it's a situation where like he blamed Rosberg. I, I think it was more of a heat of the moment thing where he just like you know yeah yeah Rosberg was far too defensive, and it's like it's like it, it was it was a situation where it felt like I know he blamed um. Uh, was he? he blamed um, Rosberg for being over defensive, but it's like it's not like Rosberg took two lines or anything, now did he? <laughs> no, it was more like it. I mean, it's more like he, he tried to go around the outside and it, it just didn't work, and he kind of said that you know Rosberg ran him off or something. Nonsense! Complete nonsense! You don't pass into that chicane, let alone around the outside. That's a zero percent move right there. Then yeah, Hamilton in the gravel, dropped to tenth, clawed his way back through the field until around the halfway mark, he got up to the to uh, Daniel Ricciardo, who was having a very good weekend in the first place. But um, Hamilton tried to try to dive bomb into turn one. Ricardo didn't really take avoid in action, not that he really needed to, because Hamilton was way back. And, you know, Hamilton tried to stick it down the, ups- the outside, locked his tyres, went wide, and then clattered into the side pocket of Ricardo's car. Um, Hamilton damaged his end plate, lost positions, had to pit for a new front wing, and was then given a subsequent drive through penalty for causing a collision. Right, Cool King? I think it was to me. Uh, yeah, it, it seemed right. Yeah, because for me, it's like it seemed like a needless move from Hamilton. Uh, like on aging tires, there was always a good chance he was going to lock up into that corner. And yeah, Ricardo didn't really avoid it, but he shouldn't have to from that far in front, quite yeah. frankly. So like, Hol- like Hamilton was never going to make the apex of that corner, not in a million years. No. If he did, he would not have hit Ricardo in the first place. Uh, at that point, it was needless and it was avoidable collision. And by letter of the law, penalty. And I think that was rightly given. 
Hamilton apologised on the radio for it, said, I'm sorry, that was on me. Um, can't really argue with that one. Um, but in the meantime, it was Vettel that was leading the way pretty comfortably from Raikkonen. It was looking like we were going to get the first Ferrari 1-2 since that controversial Germany 10 2010 result. <laughs> um, but... Kimi Räikkönen suffered an MGU failure literally right before Nico Hülkenberg's front wing disintegrated down the home straight and uh, very scary incident. It reminded me a lot of Alonso's um, Malaysia a couple of years ago where his front wing just completely went kaput um, and disintegrated underneath the car and Hülkenberg went flying into the turn one wall. Luckily he was okay. Um, But it did cause a safety car and um, it bunched everybody up. Everybody put the mediums on and Ex- and for, I want to, I want your take on this one, King, because you're a Rosberg fan. Did Mercedes get it wrong by putting the medium tire on Rosberg's car? Because I feel like it was an open goal to me, especially when Toto Wolf gave his reasoning after the race. Yeah, I looked back, and I mean, I watched the race back again, and Rosberg asked to stay on those tires, and it was the wrong decision. It was the slower tire. And it's not like it's close either. In Hungary, there's literally nearly a two-second difference between the option and the prime. It's not like it was a marginal decision where you thought, okay, maybe we have the car to do it anyway. But when Toto explained after the race that they were one lap away from the soft window, I was like, come on now. (laughs) It doesn't matter. If you pass Vettel for the win, he's not going to close the gap lost in one lap. (laughs) Okay? Like, uh, it felt felt like, I don't think it was totally on Rosberg. I I, I did hear that radio call first time around where he said, you know, he wanted to stay on the mediums to cover off Hamilton. Um, And basically, again, I don't see why you do that. I don't see why you can just run the options like a normal human being. Like, let's not overthink this here. (laughs) Um, Run the options, but no, they didn't do it, and it, it cost them dear because Rosberg did not have the pace to answer Vettel, and I was astonished by that. I felt like, uh-oh, there goes the advantage. Rosberg with with one car to beat, surely he can beat him. And I had flashbacks of last year's race where they like, the Red Mercedes could not get past Alonso's lagging Ferrari. And I know, don't get me wrong, I know Vettel was much faster in this instance, but it happened again. Merckx could not pass under the dirty air of the Ferrari, and... Next thing you know, he's got to deal with a very rampant Daniel Ricciardo behind him um, on the option tyre who did take the gamble on the options, and it worked out beautifully in the end, nearly. Um, If if, if they got past Rosberg, I think it would have been a different race in the end, but yeah, it then caused a big accident with five laps to go with with Ricardo, who had practiced it a few times already. He went for the dive bomb into turn one, the almost identical move to what Hamilton tried. Rosberg did the right thing, took avoiding action, um, let Ricardo have the apex, which he did actually surprisingly make quite well. I was like, it didn't look like it at first. I was like, oh, he's actually got it stopped. Um, but then they collide on the exit of the corner. Now, the stewards said no further action. What did you make of this, King? I felt like it was the right call. Yeah, it felt like it was the right call. It seemed like not that Rosberg thought he had the move done. But he thought Ricardo would, you know, let off. And maybe Ricardo, because obviously you can't see your front wing in the car, didn't realize he didn't give him enough room. And they just judged the, they just judged the spacing. They just judged their <laughs> surroundings wrong. And next thing you know, you know, someone's front wing's gone and someone has cut tire. 
Exactly, and yeah, it, it felt like it was a marginal. I felt, I felt like it was way too close to call to give anybody a penalty for that. And like, I think Rosberg got it, just got it maybe an inch wrong on that one. And he, you know, he, I think, I think you're, you're right in, in what you're saying. I think that Rosberg must have just assumed that Ricardo would just slot in behind, um, and that Rosberg thought the move must have been done. Yeah, no penalty in my opinion for me. I felt like that was the right decision. It didn't really bother Ricardo's race too much anyway because the fact that, that during the safety car, the convoy that was a lap down who were allowed to unlap themselves did not catch back up with the lead impact by the time the safety car pulled in. So as a result, they were kind of in no man's land anyway. So Ricardo had a pretty much a free pit stop to change his front wing anyway. He finished third instead of second, and Kvyat, you know, took second place instead, and he had a penalty for leaving the track to pass Hamilton when he damaged his end plate. So yeah, just just a just a bizarre situation, really. All kinds of penalties going on um, in the end, and it was a crazy, crazy ending. But yeah, in, in the midst of all the chaos, it was Sebastian Vettel that took his forty-first career victory, tying him. Yeah, tying him with the gr- yeah, tying him with the great Ayrton Senna, and yeah, you were right, King. Grr. King's got company on his stream, by the way. <laughs> yeah, it's like I, <laughs> I, I didn't think Vettel would get to forty-one so quickly. Honestly, I thought it was going to be Singapore. <laughs> Me too, to be honest. I, I mean, I am you know, me of little faith. Um, I genuinely did as well think that uh, it would be, you know, I don't think he'd win again this season. I thought that was a one-off win for the year. So for Vettel to win again, I thought it was excellent. Good for the sport as well. Red Bull with a double podium in, in second and third. A great weekend for Red Bull. A, Red Bull they, a weekend they really needed, given it was a situation where Force India was starting to breathe down their necks. And... Next thing you know, they get 33 points and Force India gets zero. So it was a weekend that's pretty much sealed third place in the construct, fourth place in the constructor, sorry, I should say, for Red Bull Racing in that regard. So running down the field real quick, Vettel takes the win, Kvyat second, Ricardo third, Max Verstappen in fourth place for Toro Rosso, a monumental result for Toro Rosso, their best result in a, in a race since the 2008 Brazilian Grand Prix where Vettel finished in fourth on that occasion too. And yeah, you, you couldn't see it, but every Sky F1 executive producer was basically jerking themselves off under the table <laughs> as the finish line happened there. But um, an amazing result for Toro and a superb result for McLaren as well as Fernando Alonso finished in fifth. It was kind of a nice feeling seeing McLaren on the offensive. Yeah, to see <laughs> it's like, McLaren actually racing people. It's like... Yeah, this is nice. More of this. Um, yeah, it was it was it was a pretty cool thing to see that. So yeah, well done, McLaren. A, a deserved result for them there. Well earned. Fifth place. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. And you know why not cash that in if the opportunity's begging for it? Lewis Hamilton finishing in sixth after that pit stop at the end. Um, he clawed back up the field a little bit there to get into sixth place. Um, ahead of Romain Grosjean, seventh. He's, he's, he's matching his best result of the season so far. And just to see that there's no justice in the world, Nico Rosberg, after being in a crash that probably wasn't his fault, he finished in eighth. <laughs> and after all of that, he ends up losing another four points to Hamilton in a championship after Hamilton drove like shit this race. <laughs> and so, of course, when it rains, it pours for Nico Rosberg, and he was kind of 
blessed with an open goal, really, to take some points out of the championship lead, and it didn't really work out that way. Jensen Button in ninth. Again, good result for McLaren. Both cars in the points for the first time this year. And Marcus Ericsson beating Felipe Nazar over the line for his, for another point for Marcus for the season. Ahead of Nazar. Felipe Massa and Valtteri Bottas to Williams, 12th and 13th. Bizarre to see Williams so far down the order in that one. That one was a bit of a surprise to me. Massa admitted he may have been affected by the passing of Jules Bianchi. And, uh, yeah, um, leave that one there, really, I would say. Pastor Maldonado in 14th. I'm surprised he was still on the same racing lap in the end, even though he had to take three penalties for Pastor Maldonado. An unprecedented hat-trick. It's like... In, in tribute to Roddy Piper, who lost his life yesterday, rest in peace. Just when you keep thinking somebody changes the answers, those are the answers, I keep changing the questions. And Pastor <laughs> Maldonado was like, how can I find a way to get back in the papers? I know, three penalties in one race, of course. <laughs> um, they finish in the 14th ahead of Roberto Mejia, Will Stevens, and four retirements of Carlos Sainz Jr., uh, Kimi Raikkonen, Sergio Perez and Nico Hulkenberg at the back and uh, yeah until that safety car that was the first retirement of the race so all 20 cars were running until that incident with Hulkenberg's front wing so a crazy race King and it kind of reflected in what you want to talk about now which is a, a lot of the driver ratings that came out in Sky and Autosport were, were very bizarre yeah I mean probably the most standout thing was the ratings that, you know, Nico and Lewis got for their performance, where it's basically both of them decide to give, you know, Nico, Nico fours and Lewis Hamilton a five. I found that mind boggling. Like, Hamilton made two critical errors in that race that cost him any chance of the win. And he gets a five, while Rosberg gets a four for being slower than Hamilton. Actually, let me correct myself. Autosport actually gave Nico Rosberg a three. What? <laughs> yeah. Mind-boggling. Like that is a mind-boggling score. Like I, I can't believe they gave Rosberg three. Like, not saying Rosberg was fast. He struggled with the setup all weekend long. It wasn't his weekend. Whatever happened, it wasn't going to be his weekend. But to give him a three for his speed, and then for also for an accident that wasn't really his fault, I think three is an asinine rating. Yeah, I mean... Oh, it's... Like, they tried to explain that his desire... Like, it was his desire to stay on, you know, the medium tire, which was slower, and... That was partly on his team as well. Yeah, that was partially on his team, and... Then why give Lewis a five? I don't understand that. And Lewis made two bonehead moves that cost him any chance of decent points, and he gets a five. What for being fast on paper? And like I don't get it. When like it doesn't matter how fast you are on paper if you made two critical errors like that. Yeah, you can't win a race if you can't bring the car home. Exactly. So just asinine. Any other ratings that really jumped out at you that were just terrible? Uh, no, not in particular. Maybe the passer getting a zero from Sky maybe was, you know, a bit deserved. Autosport was more forgiving to give him a two. Mm, I guess. But for the most part, it was fairly, it was fairly, it was fairly, everything was on the up and up. 
Yeah, positivity in, in, <laughs> in, in, on the podcast this time around. No massive condemnation of Sky because I actually quite liked their coverage this weekend. It wasn't just a complete Hamilton fap fest um, like it normally is. And um, again, I mean, they came out with some very good columns. Martin Brundle's post-race column is always very good. Probably the best part of Sky's coverage, I would argue. And if you haven't seen it already, check out their mid-season driver rankings so, or ratings so far, basically, throughout the year. And there's one particularly hilarious one involving poor Felipe Nazar, who has already had enough shit to go through this season after being called Fred by David Croft for no good reason. <laughs> He's now had to take another jab at from Damon Hill, who claimed he has not got an opinion on Felipe Nazar's season, but because he's good-looking and his wife likes him, he gets that's a plus. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> oh dear. It's like, well, thank, thank, thank you very much for showing your opinion there, Damon Hill. That was very insightful of you there. Your wife likes him, so that's a plus. Yay. Um, whatever. <laughs> Like, that, that seems like a very Damon Hill thing to because he's, he's such a rock star in his own right, Damon Hill. So that's kind of like a rock star comment more than anything else. But I did, I did find that funny, so I can't even joke. So, you know, I can't even hate on that one really more than anything else. But overall, a ridiculous Grand Prix. Absolutely a must watch. If you haven't already, go see it. It was a fantastic race. Um, just to see Mercedes taken down a peg and beaten on merit was also quite satisfying in its own right. So. Yeah, go check it out if you haven't already. But uh, we're going to have another quick musical break, and then we'll come back to talk about this absolutely bloated, gout-ridden IndyCar segment. See you then.
IndyCar and uh, King, we've missed a lot. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Milwaukee and Iowa, the two short tracks on the calendar. I mean, uh, I'll probably mention it briefly later, but there could be a third short track joining next year. But Oh, really? What happened? Uh, that uh, the series is considering bringing back Phoenix to the calendar, Ooh. Phoenix International Raceway. Okay, okay, that's not, that's not a bad idea. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll we'll cover the races first, and we missed Milwaukee first up. And Milwaukee is like it's like a mini oval; it's really cute and everything. And you, know, <laughs> you see cars go around there very slowly. But um, it was a race that was won by Sebastian Bourdais, and. Uh, you know hell's frozen over when Paul Tracy is complimenting Sebastian Bourdais on his oval ability all of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> the Mayans must have got it right in the end. <sighs> yeah, I mean, uh, though, after the race, it was deemed his car was underweight. But they decided just to find him. It was still a great performance from Sebastian Bourdais to get the win. Even though his car was illegal. <sighs> hmm. <sighs> <laughs> but of course, IndyCar makes up the rules as they go along, for God's sake. So, like, it's, it's, it was a situation where it was just like, well, whatever. <laughs> like, I, I was like, it was, this car was clearly illegally light. Clear advantage. Find him. <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> Fine. I see how this is. Um, and Borde almost had his thunder stolen by Helio Castro Nevis that kept up with him right till the very end of the race. And Helio who nearly won right from the very back after Penske couldn't get his car ready to qualify in time. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, they, the Penske team could not get Helio's car ready to qualify, so he had to start from 24th, stone dead last, and he finished second. Hell of a job from Helio Castroneves, and he didn't even lead a single lap of the Grand Prix at any point, but he still finished in second. Brilliant brilliant recovery from Helio, because he's Helio, he's the Fonz, hey! <laughs> he came home happy in a brilliant second place there, and third... He's the pest that will not go away. It's Graham Rahal, who who, who finished an, another podium. We'll get to that more on that later with Rahal. But, again, just a brilliant job from, from Rahal again to get on the podium and just carrying that flagship Honda unit at the moment. Because Honda across the board are struggling at the moment. But Graham Rahal is single-handedly giving them hope, King. Yes, hope for a brighter tomorrow. Because, oh, he could actually win this championship. It's amazing when you think about it. Yeah, it's just a situation where, yeah, Honda have been terrible in IndyCar across the board all season long for the most part, but the one guy who keeps bringing it, it's Graham Rahal. He, he, he will not go away. And, I, and I, I have to think Montoya must be slightly concerned at this point now that, simply put, he's just not going away, King. <laughs> no. No, he's not going away, and it's Montoya and Scott Dixon nipping at his heels. And with Sonoma being double points... They're still, like, it's largely anyone's championship. Exactly, because so it's 50 for a win in IndyCar, so it's 100 points on the final race, right? Yep. Holy crap. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, so it's, technically speaking, there's uh, even as far down as, as like, Tony Kanon can technically still win the championship. <laughs> yes. Hell, even, like, Pagano can still win the championship <laughs> at an outside reach, so... 
in case you haven't seen the standings already, we'll talk about Iowa in just a minute, but uh, in case you haven't seen the standings going into this weekend's race in Ohio tomorrow, um, Montoya um, with leads championship with 445 points. He's 42 points ahead of Graham Rahal in second with 403. And then you've got Scott Dixon um, with 397. Then the Chasing Penske's of Helio with 391. Will Power with 390. And hell... They're not a million miles away either. Sebastian Borde, 366, and Marco Andretti, 358. Marco Andretti's not really stood out too much this year, but he's actually had a pretty good season, Marco, in the end. Just ahead of... Yeah, he's... Yeah, just ahead of Joseph Newgarden. Yeah, he's consistently either, you know, top five, but usually between six and ten, and just... You know, being consistently right there every race. Yeah, looking at the table now, he's only finished outside of the top 10 on three occasions. So, yeah, he's actually been pretty consistent all season long. And there we have the bright upstart in Joseph Newgarden um, in eighth place, just six points behind him. And just his second season, he's in the top 10 in the championship. It's a fantastic season Newgarden's having. And Newgarden, again, stole a lot of the stole a lot of the show in Iowa. And, yeah, it was Ryan Hunter-Ray. He really seems to love Iowa. He, his last four years at Iowa have been first, first, second, and first. So he loves Iowa. He, he really does, and he won it again, King. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, Hunter Ray seems like a real short track kind of guy when his car is set up just right. It's, uh, yeah, it's a situation where, you know... New Garden is really, really so surprising people, but Hunter Ray just loves Iowa, always has, and he went very strong there again, held off um, New Garden right in here. New Garden was getting closer and closer, couldn't quite find a way to find a way around him, but uh, Hunter Ray held on for his third Iowa, Iowa win in the last four years, and he needed that because he's been having a wretched season by Hunter Ray standards and just struggling all season long for the Andretti performers out there, and uh, Finally got that win to prop him up the leaderboard a little bit. Now up to 12th place, just ahead of Charlie Kimball um, with that win. And um, he needed that one real bad. But it was New Garden second and Graham... Uh, not Graham, was it? it was actually Sage friggin' Karam uh, on the podium. <laughs> <laughs> it still pains me to say this. It really does. But, yeah, I'm joking. Like, I, I have to give Sage's due. That was a brilliant performance from Karam there, the, the rookie, to... Uh, finish in third on that one I was very very impressed on that one so um, Sage was very aggressive during the race though King yeah he was very aggressive uh, particularly with one Ed Carpenter where Ed felt <laughs> felt the need to, to show his displeasure while driving on the track uh, yeah, he gave him the finger uh, he, he, <laughs> while driving at 190 miles an hour because why the hell not? Uh, one-handed, it's because that's what their carpenter does. And Carpenter actually chased him down after the race, found Karam, and I think the words were something along the lines of, I didn't like your fucking driving, man. <laughs> yeah. Um, carpenter was heated, and Karam was just like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and it, like, if if you watch it back, you see Carlos Munoz in the background, just like just scared out of his mind. <laughs> yeah, that was hilarious. Like, <laughs> Munoz was just sitting there, like, uh oh. <laughs> Munoz himself finishing fifth, a very good performance for Munoz as well in that race. Um, but yeah, it was a situation where 
Minus looked look, 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 look scared shitless there, like Carpenter was about to start swinging. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's, it, I thought it was just kind of funny seeing old man Carpenter and, and, and the young'uns having a little scrap. Um, again, I'm not the kind of guy that pretends to get offended by fights. I love a good fight. <laughs> I just do. It's in me. And I don't care what anyone says. Just shut up and let them fight. I mean, I tune into NASCAR just to see the Brad Kozlowski... Jeff Gordon fight last year, and that was bloody brilliant. <laughs> uh, on a quick side note, what's some of your favorite sporting fights, King? <laughs> oh, God. It's like I've not been around for many a fight. Obviously, they're, obviously American sports has its fights, but... Uh, oh, yeah. It's like I probably remember one of the fights from... Oh, God. Yeah, the Yankee Red Sox fights. Oh, probably. They're pretty heated. Yeah, I think... When Pedro Martinez got in a fight with the now late Yankees bench coach Don Zimmer, I remember as well the Malice in the Palace, the uh, Indiana Pacers and the Detroit Pistons going to war, and then Artest swinging at a fan. Um, quite the most surreal thing ever. Where you just see Artest is just laying on the bench, and to be fair, it's not totally Artest's fault. He's just laying there chilling, and then somebody throws a beer at him. Artest goes crazy. He jumps into the stands and starts swinging haymakers at him. <laughs> and the next thing you know, there's there's fights in the in the there's, there's, there's fights in the stands. Fred Jones is getting his ass kicked <laughs> by like three fans at once. <laughs> and as Bamani Jones says in his videos, like no one's like, oh poor Fred Jones. The <laughs> boy's just hilarious. And like, Artest got got suspended for eighty games. It was the biggest suspension in NBA history, and. For at least for a fight, and it, it, it was hilarious. If you've never if you've never seen it, just YouTube it. It's it's hilarious. I, like I said, I love a good fight, and and it kind of had a negative knock on effect, really, because it's kind of caused IndyCar a week later to drop this new article, Article Nine Point Eight Point Two, which is basically IndyCar covering themselves against anything negative against their own series to quickly to quickly read this out i'm just going to find the blog post real quick because i wrote about this on my website and check out the blog section and you can scroll down and find indycar's unfortunate kumbaya which is what i called the column um and here's here's the full written statement it goes competitors must be respectful professional fair and courteous to others at all times competitors must not attempt to or engage in conduct or statements that in the judgment of indycar a threatens or denigrates any official fellow competitor or the indycar brand b calls into question the integrity or legitimacy of the rules or their application construction or interpretation C. Denigrates the IndyCar series racing schedule or events. D. Threatens or denigrates any IndyCar business relationship, including those with sponsors or broadcasters. Or E. Otherwise threatens the integrity, reputation, or public confidence of the sports, IndyCar, or the IndyCar series. A big deal, this one, because... Basically, to, in layman's terms, you cannot criticize anything to do with IndyCar anymore, or anything even linked to IndyCar anymore, like like Verizon, like a sponsor, like <laughs> a broadcaster, etc. So IndyCar's pretty much covered every base on this one. So, King, what do you make of this rule? It's it's a pretty big deal because let's be real, the drivers in IndyCar are very vocal normally, very honest with themselves. Yeah, like oh, I wouldn't even say this was like. If I had to say they made this for a driver, I wouldn't even say Ed Carpenter. I'd say Will Power. <laughs> well, 
if it was going to be somebody, <laughs> it was going to be willpower, wasn't it? Um, let's be honest with ourselves here. And yeah, it's a situation where willpower is very vocal. He mentioned this during Fontana, which was a fantastic race, but had two very big accidents in it. One involving Briscoe and Hunter Ray. We mentioned them on the previous episode and. Paul Powell's quote was something on the lines of, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> yeah, and that was that was basically ESPN's coverage of the race. They didn't even like, cover the race. They covered Will Power's interview, and that was pretty much it. Ouch. Um, well, yeah. I know when that happens, that's nothing but negative PR for IndyCar, which, you know, is still recovering from a death less than five years ago. So it's a situation where it's not ideal if, if that's the kind of press IndyCar is getting. I don't, think, you know, I don't even think Power's interview was that bad, to be honest with you. It was just like, well, it was more like, hey, let's take a look at the mirror of ourselves here and see what we're doing after a race where maybe he was a little bit heated given the fact that he was taken out by not now Sato in that race. And, you know, I can see why he said it. He's just gonna be, I, think, I, don't, I don't think King's interview was that bad, King, to be honest with you. I really don't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, ugh, by the way... Because of who Will Power is as a driver and how, you know, successful he is, mm. people outside of NASCAR, like in other sports and, you know, just ESPN guys covering IndyCar, not being normally racing guys, they take his opinion seriously. Yeah, that's fair. When they, th- yeah, when they think someone, when, when Will Power says that, oh, someone could die out there, they take that seriously. Okay, yeah, that's the funny thing, it wasn't just Power that said this, Tony Kaman showed concern, Marco Andretti said it was crazy, but obviously Will Power, the reigning champion after all, let's let's not forget, um, he said it, and yeah, it's a big deal, because it's come, it's come from Will Power, who's been a perennial top contender in IndyCar, and obviously series champion for a good few years now, and... Yeah, IndyCar is basically covering themselves off. And I think you're right. I think it is more based on what Will Power had to say as opposed to this Carpenter Karam fracas that we got um, after Iowa. And, you know, the first line says, must be competitive, must be fair to everybody. And, yeah. you know, I guess they've covered that off too. It's just like, well, it's one of those, well, while we're here situations, <laughs> like, you know, so it's like going to the doctors and saying, well, yeah, while we're here, I've got, I just got some problem with my elbow. It's just like, you know, but it's a situation where they've gone out of their way to basically cover, cover everything off. What annoys me about this rule is you've basically said no arguments and you promote your series using the hashtag of... Indie Rivals. Mm. <laughs> Anyone else see the problem with that? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a situation where, you know, you, you've made a huge deal about the rivalry between drivers in IndyCar and in, 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 and in the IndyCar series this season. They've been promoting that hashtag all year long. They have had highlight videos, you know, very, you know, corny, run-of-the-mill you know, sports highlight style videos where they're talking about, yeah, we've got to win, you know, one of, you always want to beat your rival. Like, leave that Connor Daly in one, and he's like, he's, he, he was a stand-in. It's like, what, what rival has <laughs> Daly got? And it's just like, okay, whatever. But at the same time, it's like, you can't really promote a series called Indie Rivals with that hashtag and then say, everybody must be fair and respectful. Really, come on now. Uh, I don't know. It's like, all the other major sports leagues here in the United States have these rules, like NASCAR, the NFL, NBA. 
Major League Baseball, the National Hockey League, they all have rules similar to this where they can fine people for making comments that is, you know, that denigrates the league they play in or fellow competitors. I get that. And yeah, I mean, I just saw yesterday there was a, there was a benches clear in a baseball game because Madison Bumgarner didn't like the way a bat was flipped. So, yeah, yeah sometimes it's a little bit OTT in that regard as well because baseball is very hard and fast in its tradition and whatnot. But at the same time, I get why it exists and I get why this rule is in place. I'm not totally against this rule. People like to think I am. I'm not. I, you can't, say bad things about your employer at work and expect to get away with it that's just how life works you can't just criticize your the person that's writing your checks <laughs> you know so it's just like it, just, it doesn't work that way in life in general but at the same time indycar i think has made a reputation with itself by having very honest drivers and having drivers that are characters like will power like helio like montoya like joseph newgarden you know, like James Hinchcliffe, guys like that, where they've, they've made a name for themselves because of who they are as drivers. And I think putting the muzzle on that, I think, is bad promotion, personally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, again, you bring up, you know, the fight that Mass and Bumgardner started. Like, they all know that there are fines involved, but they still do it anyway. Of course! Like, no one's going to care about a five grand fine that can punch a dude in the jaw. I mean, because it's yeah, worth like, it. Ex- <laughs> exactly, like... Yes, we all don't like this rule, but I highly doubt it's going to change much. Maybe it'll make, maybe it'll like take consideration to tone down certain comments, but it's not going to stop much. No, and I, I don't think willpower is going to suddenly rein it in now this rule exists. <laughs> if anything, he was taking the piss out of our idea when he retweeted a, a a fan's picture of his infamous double bird salute being edited with thumbs up instead of on Photoshop, and even he got a chuckle out of it. So I, I don't I don't think it's going to change very much. You'll, you'll just see a few more fines in those really post race scrutineering reports, so to speak. I'm like, oh yeah, driver A was fined five thousand dollars for criticizing IndyCar and giving it a boo so to speak but um yeah i don't think it's gonna change much you know I, I, maybe i've over over exaggerated drivers drivers reining it in because of this rule i don't think carpenter would have stopped talking to Karim if this rule was in place beforehand <laughs> i think he would have gone down there and given him a piece of his own mind anyway so yeah they'll they'll take the risk they'll they'll swing a few punches here and there they'll they'll come out and say things and they'll be honest with themselves because that's what these guys do and that's, that's something i've noticed as a new fan to indycar to say these guys are very very honest um and i like that i applaud the series that's what makes the series so fun to me and we talked about this before we went on the air about indycar seems to get the balance right between fun not taking itself too seriously and embracing the characters of its drivers as opposed to hardcore racing at least at least that's how i feel about it anyway what do you reckon yeah yeah yeah. i i feel exactly the same there it's or it's completely fun but not too you know insane Mm. where it's not like over the top like we're definitely going we're definitely only here to see like a fight between two guys after the race no it's not it's not like that let me just stress it's not like that either (laughs) yeah it's not like it's not that far at the end of spectrum it's sweet spot where they let their driving 
on the track do the do the talking. I mean, one of the highlights of IndyCar on YouTube this week was Simon Pagano driving a NASCAR truck and basically taking <laughs> the piss. I mean, that's the kind of shit that is that is way too much fun for Formula One, and that's why I like it so much. You would never have a parody video like that in Formula One side of things. They're far no. too highbrow and PR intrusive for that. Like, part of the reason why I love IndyCar as a series is because their drivers are willing to take themselves down a peg or two. They're very fan friendly. They have a very open door mentality, and they can take the piss out of themselves. And I can always appreciate that in anything. So, yeah, I. I don't like the rule, but I don't think it's going to change very much either. I think that's a very fair statement you you made there. I think you're absolutely right on that one. But uh, yeah, let's cover a couple of other little minor news segments before we wrap this show up. Um, actually, been quite a short show given how loaded it's actually been <laughs> in the end. Um, LEDs are going to be coming onto the cars for this starting in this race in Ohio this weekend. Um, we're going to have LED panels on the side of the cars displaying track position in terms of positions and when. Um, in the pit stops, we're going to see a pit timer on the side of the cars, and we're going to see when the drivers activate a push to pass um, on the side of the car with a giant flashing PP signal on the side of the car when it happens. Um, King, what do you make of this? I, th- I think I think the the push to pass is a little bit excessive for this LED, but overall, I think I quite like the idea. <laughs> yeah, I quite like it. Like you see it in the Tudor United Sports Car Championship, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where. You- it's easier to keep the track of the cars and what position they're in, especially on the short ovals where there's a lot of traffic. Exactly, and you know sometimes it's and again fans have said it can get confusing if when you're live down now. I totally understand why because you, you got all these cars together in packs, and yeah, having a number to make sure you know a car isn't a lap down instead of a guy that's on for track position. Yeah, I mean why not? And I know a lot of teams complain about oh it adds weight to the car. The, ma- the panels are three millimeters long. <laughs> like, th- <laughs> they are literally the width of a CD. Like, I, I-, I really don't think it's going to weigh that much. <laughs> it's really cool technology. The IndyCar showed it off on their YouTube channel earlier t- today. I think it's a really nice innovation, and I think it's a great idea. I really like the idea. Um, on the whole, I think it's a really cool thing. And, you know, I love IndyCar already for having like, the big 360-degree swivel cameras. I think that's already a, a cool thing, and I-, I, re- I wish F1 had that more often. Um, um, but yeah, overall, really like the LED idea as well. Um, and one more thing before we go, we're talking about as well. This is a big one as well. Um, Derek Walker, the president of IndyCar Operations, has decided to step down at the end of the season. King. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, like personally, I don't know Walker that well, mm. but he's you know runs the. Week weekend we, like the weekend segments. He, he's not you know Mark Miles. He does you know the big the heavy schedule. Yeah. yeah, the heavy the the back end part of the deal. But he's heavily involved in the race weekend operations, and you know it's it's gonna be hard for IndyCar to find someone to replace him. Yeah, it seems like a very important role. I mean, again, I'm I'm a new fan, so I don't really understand the true context of Walker's role. But I know he came to the forefront quite prominently during the Indy 500 this year, and obviously the risk of the Chevrolets flipping out, they had to do something about that. I think it worked out quite nicely in the end. I don't think the field was too sketched out between Honda and Chevrolet during qualifying during the Indy 500 either, so I think it worked out quite nicely in the end. So I applauded IndyCar for how they went about themselves during that weekend. 
on the whole, shame because I think again I've got no I've got no beef with Walker really. I, I, I think maybe some older IndyCar fans probably do. <laughs> Seeing the reaction to this more more like a reaction of shock than anything else, like huh uh, when this happened. But yeah, we'll have to wait and see what happens on that regard. But uh, yeah, Just stay tuned to. Um, Ohio this weekend. The race is live on British TV. It's on BT Sports 2, I believe. I think from something like 6 p.m. onwards um, British time, so check that one out. Um, I, I think it's going to be great. I've seen the track. It looks pretty good. And uh, yeah, Indy cars on actual tracks is always pretty fun too. So I'm, look, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing how that one works out as well. Just before we go, King, send yourself a real plug real quick. Yeah, if you want to see more of my content, you could go to formulae.nyc. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, you could do so at, at King. And of course, you know where to find me, Harrison101.com for everything Harrison related, all you need to know. And like I said one more time, if you've been if you've been affected by the loss of Jules Bianchi, I highly recommend checking out the Henry Surtees Foundation. I think that's a great place you can donate um, in the midst of what was a sad tragedy. But uh Yep, we, we go on. We'll be back, hopefully, in a couple of weeks' time. Until then, I've been Andre Harrison. He's been Ryan King. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next time. Sayonara. Bye.